1: Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is My Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Carroll. In this episode, we're talking about DraftKings going public and the size of the gambling opportunity in the US, one of Emmett's favorite stocks for a post-COVID world, and the two companies not on the My Wall Street shortlist that we're excited about at the minute. So guys, it's a big week for uh, company earnings this week, and I think you called it the equivalent of Christmas morning or a day trip to Disney for investors. Um, so we spoke about on the last podcast how this will be a, quite a strange earnings season considering all the market volatility and the uncertainty around the lockdown. But before we started today's podcast, I just wanted to ask you guys, is there any companies you're really keen to hear about this week in particular? Um, Emmett, I'll come to you first.
2: Yeah, there's a slew of giant companies reporting James and Google went last night. But I think we're going to, from this week, and the reason I call it uh, like a day trip to Disney is, I think we're going to get a good read this week on how the broader market or, you know, the broader investing public is responding to quote unquote news, because we're starting to get the first real read on the crisis that we're in. So if you take, yeah. you know, the the, uh, the good and the ugly, I think Amazon rep- Reporting, we're going to see some outstanding numbers. And we wait with bated breath to see how in fact their business has changed. And I think on the ugly side of the equation, Boeing reporting will be be pretty ugly for all the obvious reasons. So we're going to really see the full gamut, the full spectrum of reporting in the days ahead and other companies like Tesla. And uh, I mean, there's so many that that we are invested in and interested in and cover here. But I think the two ends of the spectrum for me would be Amazon and Boeing. Rory, what about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the week, isn't it? Like, this is uh, the the biggest week always, the second week of earnings, the banks have already kind of done their thing. And now we're looking at kind of some of the the highest weighted companies in the S&P 500 are reporting like Google reported last night, Uh, Amazon on Thursday, um, Mastercard is going to be a very interesting one. I'm a, a big shareholder in Mastercard. Let's like see what their kind of gross volume is like, or what their yeah. guidance is going to be going forward. Uh, Tesla is always fun. Um, and but the one I'm really looking forward to is TeleDoc, which has obviously a massive rise over the last couple of months with this whole idea of telemedicine being the way forward in a global pandemic. So, um. Uh, you know, it's 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 weird because they're reporting earnings for the for the month leading up to March. So if this all the 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 time that they're reporting is all pre kind of shut down. Yeah. Um, but what will be really be interesting is kind of the guidance going forward. If any of them actually even have guidance going forward, because obviously it's a really uncertain time. So we don't really know what's what's going to happen. How long this is going to last? When things are going to start reopening? So yeah, guidance is going to be important and also kind of balance sheets. I think We're going to be looking at balance sheets quite a lot to see what companies have gone out there and got some cash on hand because cash on hand is going to be king going forward over the next kind of 12 months. Yeah,
1: it's really just a case of not how to perform, but if they can survive or not.
0: Totally. And, you know, the big fear is that there's going to be some sort of credit crunching companies aren't going to have enough money to operate. So the companies that have gone out, I saw Slack went and took out a big amount of debt just a couple of weeks ago, that was a good move. Make sure they have cash on hand just to make. Because I mean, it's interest rates are at historic lows right now, so it's. Yes, yeah. I mean it's not free money. We don't like to use that term, <laughs> but it's it's money that they can get for cheap to ensure they survive over the next kind of twelve months.
1: Absolutely. So speaking of, I suppose, of the COVID-19 pandemic, then two episodes ago on the Stock Club podcast, we talked about some of the companies that might have adapted well to the recent lockdown. Um, In particular, we kind of talked about those food delivery companies like Uber Eats, DoorDash and Grubhub um, and how, you know, the fact that people are staying in their homes and maybe not being able to go out to restaurants and stuff, that that might benefit these companies. But I suppose over the last few weeks, Rory, it's looking like that actually might not really be the case.
0: Yeah, I think it was was even just in the last podcast that I said we don't like to use the term no brainer.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I was because... the that was the stock of the month podcast. I think yeah, uh, okay, yeah, it was the stock of the month
0: podcast. Like, there's sometimes sometimes when you like look at a company, you think right, this is obviously going to do well based on the current circumstances. And food delivery businesses, you would think would be doing very well in this pandemic because people are stuck at home. But actually what's happening is the opposite. They're actually doing quite poorly. Um, and companies like Uber Eats, Just Eat, which is over here in, in Europe, but not in the US, I don't think, and Deliveroo are actually seeing a big fall in their numbers because, first of all, the biggest companies that they usually deliver from are the likes of McDonald's, uh, KFC, Burger King. They both shut shop, so they're actually not doing deliveries right now. Um, And then the other thing is that people are actually eating at home a lot more and have a lot more time at home, so they're cooking a lot more. Baking Um, bread. Yeah, there's an awful lot of baking (laughs) bread. There's an awful lot of sourdough images popping up my Instagram account. Um, I saw one good one, which was someone holding a sourdough loaf and saying, this came out really well because I bought it from a shop like a normal person. (laughs) 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 In response to everyone else kind of baking their own bread. But, yeah, we've talked about food delivery companies before, and, like, I think, you know, I don't like them at all. They're, I think they're a really bad business to be in. They try when others suffer, really, in terms mm. of the drivers that are paid to deliver their food. The restaurants hate them as well. They cut, totally cut into their margins. And this is one of the those weird kind of social experiments where we saw, like, if, you know, if the dream happened and everyone had to stay at home, would these companies, you know, this was really what they were talking about all this time that this was going to happen and people were always going to be ordering from their favorite restaurants and it turns out they're just not. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a really interesting kind of one of those companies that you just expected would do well in this scenario, but yeah. we're seeing numbers like businesses falling anywhere from two to twenty three percent across wow. Europe. Uh, that's based on kind of a uh, app track tracker um that monitors app use across europe and so yeah i mean it's just another example of why maybe those companies like doordash grubhub postmates i just think they're very poor investments the only kind of one that i would kind of consider would be something like uber eats or uber in general because at least that's kind of part of a bigger network rather than just being a food delivery app
1: yeah so it is the kind of thought that you know if they can't perform now when people are literally stuck indoors and can't go anywhere else. There, there's, there never will really be a, a business environment where they'll prosper. I mean, there's definitely a kind of if not now, when
0: vibe yeah. about them. You know, like if this is the big kind of long play with DoorDash and Grubhub and stuff like that was that in the future, everyone will order from home all the time. You know, yeah. if you believe in that vision of the world, then they're good investments. But we're actually, you know, We've been rushed into the situation where that's actually a possibility and it's not happening. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but some food just doesn't do well
1: in delivery. Yeah, I've always said burgers never travel well. I have no, no, no data to back that up, but burgers just don't travel well. My, my girlfriend is
0: adamant that if it's not like your typical delivery, like a Chinese or a pizza or an Indian, it's going to be rubbish. If you try any kind of fancier food in a delivery setting, it always turns out poorly. And we've had some experience of it. We've tried kind of high-end restaurants delivering food and like great chefs and brilliant ingredients and all that, but it just doesn't work out when it gets to your your table. It's just like, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not willing to pay up for this. I'd rather have got the pizza. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so moving on then. So I suppose, again, speaking in light of the current lockdown and, and the global pandemic, uh, there's no, no live sports on at the moment. I think this is pretty much a global phenom- phenomenon. Both leagues and, and um, uh, sports schedules have been cancelled. But strangely enough, the fancy sports betting company DraftKings actually went public last Friday, with shares in the company jumping some 10% on the day. Um DraftKings going public was interesting for a few reasons, not least the fact that they went public through a reverse merger. This means that it merged with an already listed company, in this case, a company called Diamond Eagle Acquisition, and became listed without the need for a traditional IPO. Uh, and I'm just going to come to you really quickly here. First, um, the I suppose the last big company that went public through a reverse merger was um, Virgin Galactic, um, and. Do you think that maybe taking this route um, to a reverse merger kind of protects these companies from market volatility a little bit more than a traditional IPO route?
2: There's a lot of benefits in a reverse merger. I guess it's one of the three routes to market. The most obvious one is an IPO. And you go through the entire process of getting your business IPO ready and surround yourself with the right advisors and structures and off you go and do it alone and you build what's known as build a book of potential investors. So on day one, you have um, interest and investors in in your business. Um, the second method of going public uh, is a direct listing, where you don't IPO per se, but let's just simplify it by saying you fill in all the paperwork yourself. And the third is a reverse merger. As you as you mentioned there, James and social capital Hedosphia uh, was the name, if you like, of Virgin Galactic or the the reverse merging partner of Virgin Galactic when uh when they uh brought it to market there a couple of months ago. Um mm. The advantages of a reverse merger, uh, as I was just saying to someone yesterday, is is there's no drama. You're kind of, you're getting to market quickly. You're getting to market in a far more cost-effective way. Um, It's almost done and dusted before you've even noticed it's happening uh, as an investor. So there are definite benefits to the founders or the management team of the business that's about to go onto the market because it's going to save the senior team Months of their time, effort, and thinking in in going that route, yeah, and so then
1: kind of digging into draftkings a bit more they're they're a very interesting company. And I suppose the rise of companies like this is tied to the opening of gambling laws in the US over the past few years. So just for anyone who's who's not up to date with US gambling laws, gambling is currently legal on a federal level in the US. But then it's highly restricted in terms of interstate and online betting and things like that. Uh, In particular, sports betting remains one of the most restricted types of gambling across most US states and territories. Rory, we've spoken before about kind of the, the rising tide, I suppose, of gambling in the US. What kind of opportunity do you think there is for a company like DraftKings?
0: Well, I mean, there is just to start a huge opportunity in in, in gambling um, in the US. It's, you know, it's one of those weird things that's just been happening uh, and everyone just kind of pretends it hasn't been happening for years. <laughs> yeah, um, The... The DraftKings story is funny because them, along with another company called jewels set up in New York a couple of years ago, and there was a huge amount of kind of interest in them. They were basically funding the entire ESPN uh, company, but with their advertising, you couldn't get away from DraftKings and FanDuel's being on the air nonstop. And there was a whole thing. Do you remember this time about it? How the the staff were actually like talking to each other and there was a whole thing where one one employee of one of them won a huge jackpot because he'd seen the data from the other company or no sorry he'd seen data from his own company and bet on the other company and the New York's uh, attorneys general just was like this is such a racket and uh, t- threatened to shut them down much to the uh, dismay of their investors but they've gotten through that and now Fangio's, I believe, is owned by Flutter Entertainment, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago as being yeah. a company that would really, like, I mean, of all the companies out there that are set to benefit from uh, this legalization of sports betting, I think Flutter are probably the ones in the driving seat. Unfortunately, they're they're not listed on the US exchanges. Um, but DraftKings is kind of the other, the other bet. Uh, yeah. There. And... Yeah, I mean, not going IPO right now obviously makes a lot of sense because there's gonna be no I I wouldn't expect to see any IPOs over the next kinda of couple of months. Um would I invest in them just yet? I'm not sure. I mean what like first of all it's a strange time for them to go to, 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 to IPO when yeah, like you said, there's no sports betting happening for at least another six months, I would imagine. I mean I stayed up to watch the NFL draft the other night just because I assumed it was the last thing connected to sports I was yeah. going to see for
1: a long time. Well, well, funnily enough, mentioning the draft, the the CEO of DraftKings, Jason Robbins, actually said a few days ago that the the NFL draft was one of they got a huge amount of traffic into the draft, and he kind of attributed that to all of this pent up, I suppose, energy and demand that you know people want traditional sports, and with the lack of it, they'll they'll probably just bet on anything. I mean I would bet
0: on I get I'd bet on I'd watch people play FIFA right now I mean I'm, you know <laughs> if you if you're talking about esports, anything would you know uh would would get me over the line right now there was a great tweet by someone who said, um, three days into sports being canceled and met this lovely woman she, apparently she's my wife uh, <laughs> <seems
2: nice. laughs> uh,
1: well well y- Sorry, yeah, that might be a nice segue into talking about esports. So, you know, obviously all live sporting events are cancelled at the moment, but esports, we've been talking about it for a few years with companies like Take-Two Interactive and um, Activision Blizzard, and it's, it's really a, a rising industry um, across the world.
0: Yeah, and we've been talking about esports for an awful long time without really seeing any kind of end game to it. You know, it's, yeah. it's still being talked up about as this the future of sports um and we, we're like we're watching kind of the companies like take two and particularly uh ea sports because they own the kind of big fifa franchise and madden and stuff like that i'm wondering you know is is this going to be a massive thing and yeah like, I, I believe it will be but kind of, we're kind of like if again, if not now, when, you know, when is yeah, this, not, is this exactly. going to be a big thing. So I think everyone's kind of watching that space very carefully at the moment.
2: And there's no reason for it ever to go into decline because, no pun intended, these sports levels the playing field and it allows anyone irrespective of their physical abilities or self-image or, you know, stage of life to participate in the thrill of sports. And, And as platforms and software gets more and more and more evolved and advanced, you can just see a time in our lifetime where a little like Ready Player One, you're completely immersed in... The sports world—you will be playing in the Premiership or in the NBA—and your mind is convinced. You can just see it really being this uh, fairly steady-moving mega trend that just will never go into decline.
0: Well, funnily enough, when I was sorry James, when I was uh, I was researching it a couple of years ago, and I read this piece about how. The the guys who are top are at the top of kind of esports are all in a certain age bracket. They're all young. Yeah. They're all incredibly healthy and fit. Like they actually work out in the gym the same way a normal athlete would, because you need to be actually at that level in terms of like reflexes and you know that's the kind of level you're playing against. Wow! Um, wow! That is interesting. People, you know, makes I, sense like as well. you, you, Uh you can't be like kind of old fogey. Mm. No offense, Emma
1: that all right i was just gonna say speaking of your kind of your desperate need for sports i, I don't know if you've seen on youtube but there's a this like whole video series of marble racing so this guy like creates all of these courses like in sand and and he actually builds them as well and then he races marbles and does like live commentary of the marbles racing then the courses I actually uh,
0: have seen it, one of them. It was really good.
1: <laughs> I, I watched it <laughs> <laughs> intensely. Sa- it might satiate your, your sports lust. Um, so let's move on then. And let's just take a quick look at what's happening in my Wall Street at the moment. Um, it's the start of a new month this week, which means that we'll have a new stock of the month edition to look forward to on Monday. Rory, you've actually already told us what this, um, this month's edition is going to be. I think it's probably fair to say it's one of the most influential companies of the 21st century. Absolutely and that's all i am given away <laughs> <laughs> short and sweet um, don't, don't forget that you can still find April's stock of the month pick in my Wall Street at the moment and it's currently up about 40% since we picked it so again we, uh, we, we don't look at the short term returns but it's, it's nice when we get them too uh, don't forget that we also have a new stock edition in recently which was is a great play for the post COVID future And speaking of a post-COVID future, Emmett, you recently wrote a Daily Insight that's in My Wall Street at the moment too, picking some of the companies you think will thrive in a post-COVID world. One of those companies was Atlassian, and I think you're going to speak about them as the company we never talk about
2: right now. I am indeed, James. So Atlassian is a favourite of mine, as, as regular listeners will know. Uh, and just running through the quick, fast facts on Atlassian before we go a little deeper in the conversation. Atlassian's ticker is TEAM. Its market cap is circa $37 billion, um, uh, which is a nice kind of safe space, if you like. It's, a, it's, it's strong, but it has lots of room to grow. The business has more cash than that. Uh, which we like because as we know, businesses, countries and people, you know, with more cash than debt are in a good position. And insider ownership is around 1%, which uh, we like to see uh, good insider ownership, which is like founders, uh, senior managers and broader uh, team within a business that their rewards are aligned with our interests. So currently, 1% of team or Atlassian is is owned by people who work for the business. And uh, while it's not the highest level ever, it's still a significant level. 1% of 37 billion is still a lot of money in shares assigned to people. So um, Atlassian went public in in 2015. And if you look at its stock price graph, it's been that shape that you wish for when you buy in 2015. It's just grown and grown. It, It was sitting at around 27 bucks when it floated. And today it's some around, 150 bucks per share so that's um the the unit the unit the numbers if you like of Atlassian so the business is best known today for a handful of business uh, collaborative and productivity tools such as Jira, Confluence, yeah. Bitbucket and my personal favorite collaborative tool which is Trello and a business that I've used for very many years long before Atlassian ever bought the, the, the product and integrated But what I'd like to do is take a moment to walk through the Atlassian timeline, which I think paints a really great big picture view of the business, its culture, its opportunity, um, and why I'm particularly fond of the investment and of the business right now. So back in 2002, uh, in Sydney, Australia, Michael Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar founded Atlassian uh they the, they were a pair of friends studying in the University of New South Wales in Sydney and I saw an opportunity and and the name itself is a derivation from atlas the the greek uh mythological character who is known for holding up uh the world or planet earth yeah. you've often seen so atlas scene is a play on that word so um the the business it truly has a, a really, really interesting backstory. And and I think one that each chapter of that story reinvigorates your faith that it is a, as good a business or a better business today than it ever has been. So um, the first thing I'll say before I walk through that history is that Atlassian does not have a traditional sales team um, it relies on its own website to sell and a few partner channels. So what this business model is better known as is land and expand, and yeah. um, and it's it's something we've all experienced in our day to day life, the network effect. So if you think of the messaging app that you use to communicate with your best friends and your family, let's call it WhatsApp, for example, the effort to move your friends and family to a substitute messaging app like Telegram, for example, is not really worth the effort. So like while there might be better messaging apps out there the the utility that whatsapp or whatever it is that you use is sufficient and all the people you know and care for are using it so it is the app that you use to communicate with your people and and um i could make a pitch now to say there's a better messaging app but you you know you'll use what you've got and that's it's It's the networking effect that Rory spoke
1: about last week in terms of um, the peer-to-peer payments. It's just, you know, once one embeds himself in a group or uh, even a country, that it's very, very hard for people to move away en masse.
2: It's entirely that. I mean, we we uh three we four Luke as well. We've spoken to our tech colleagues about the different products that Atlassian has produced, and um, Jira Confluence Bitbucket play a role in my Wall Street as they do in in I think it's eighty five percent of the Fortune five hundred companies. I'd have to double check that number, but they they um they have pro- each one of those products, whether it's Trello Bitbucket or whatever Jira, they have substitutes for sure. But there are there is no business that has that complete end-to-end suite of products so when you in fact start to use one of their products the probability of you moving on to one of their partner products is high so um so that that is i guess the the i I cannot describe what jira actually is i've been told but i'm not going to attempt to (laughs) our confluence our bed bucket but i can tell you all about Trello. so back in 2002 Mike and Scott, the founders of of Atlassian, took out ten grand uh, credit card debt to launch uh, Jira one and this was the birth of Atlassian. and And about a year later, in two thousand three, they launched uh, Confluence. Um, so they these they immediately saw an uptake on these core products, and just three years after launching in two thousand and two. Atlassian became profitable without having taken any venture capital, which is as rare and black swan a moment as you can imagine in the software world. Um, So the year in 2005, apart from becoming profitable, it was also the year they got their 1,000th customer. So from the word go, product market fit was really high. They, They landed an idea for products that were needed, and the business grew uh, in every respect. All the metrics you'd look for in a business grew rapidly. Um, and just a few years later, and this is part of the story that I particularly feel a high level of warmth towards and is one that I want to do at my Wall Street in due course and very shortly, I hope, is that in, in 2006, uh, Atlassian pledged to donate 1% of their equity, their profit and their employee time to support non-profit organizations, and in doing so created the Atlassian Foundation, which to this day has had an incredible impact on the world around us. They they have Given away 17 million US dollars worth of equity in donations to education focused on charities. They've given away 37,000 hours of their employees' time for volunteering in local communities. And they have licensed 61,000 licenses of their uh, product licenses to charities. So for me, I love that. I just, that that you know the goosebumps effect where you know a business isn't just fumbling in the greasy till that they want to do good in their community and that for me that's beyond the green traffic light i just love that so that was in 2006 they launched the the atlassian foundation which runs to this day and does good to this day then two years later in 08 they started to do something that i that was very much part of their DNA at the time, and, and it's still there, which was acquisition. So they acquired um, a range of products, businesses that um, to today, I'm not so sure if they're relevant anymore. Bamboo, Fish Eye, Crucible, Clover, Crowd. They basically want, went on an acquisition mode, which for those who've watched acquisitions um is a risky enough strategy. You know, widening your reach through acquisition is notoriously difficult. And anyone who's done an MBA, you know, has done case studies on how acquisition is a, is a risky and difficult way to to grow your business. Um so in 08 they went on that acquisition spree. Two years later in 2010, um They launched Bitbucket, which I know is still out there. Um, And then 2012, Atlassian celebrated its 10th anniversary and so happened to hit $100 million of revenue without a sales team. Now, that's pretty impressive to think that you got to $100 bucks of cash falling into your registers, and you don't have someone in sales. That's again another one of those um, intake of breath moments. You are like, "Wow, that's great!" Um, and it really, it really sings to how how
1: valuable the product obviously is in a lot of teams around the world, and how kind of entrenched it is. And I, I, I think you. Um, I remember you speaking about it last season before, and talking about how they, they, the the retention rates, how they get more money out of um, customers each year
2: yeah and the net dollar retention rate is is increases year on year, so it is it's, it's, the people, their their customers not only value what they 're using but buy more of their stuff um, yeah so so two thousand and twelve we saw one hundred million bucks of revenue without a sales team, and then three years later in two thousand and fifteen, as mentioned um, um, by me a moment ago, they went public and listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol or under the ticker team. Um, the business, the plot thickens, the business strengthened. And in 2017, um, Atlassian bought Trello. So we had already seen they had a track history of acquisitions and and that they acquired Trello from, I think it's Frog Creek Software. And I remember looking as a user of Trello back in the day, which I mentioned added so much value to my life. Um, like, how do these guys make money? Because Frog, Frog Creek gave the whole lot away with no adverts, and I at the time wondered how how does a business like this make money? I couldn't see how Frog Creek managed, but uh, Atlassian tapped on their door and gave them four hundred twenty five million bucks for 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 Adla- for Trello. So you can kind of see the economics, you know. Yeah. So the the their payday arrived, and I'm glad it did. Um, and the vast majority of that was cash and shares. So then, twenty eighteen. Atlassian announced a strategic partnership with Slack. Who is, you know, I think our Atlassian and Slack are are possibly my two favorite B two B software kings. Um, yeah. so to see them, they were once stated, um, they're they're of it's it's a frenemy situation. They are as much strategic partners as they are competitive, um, enemies, if you like. But they what they did was Atlassian decided to discontinued two of those products, HipChat and Stride and provided a migration paths to Slack for all their customers. And in doing so, they became more friends than enemies. So the frenemy, the, the friend bit of the frenemy thing strengthened. And I think now there's a very, very strong working relationship between Atlassian and Slack and the overlap between their product um, offerings. It is very very minimal, if at all. So, um, so I I think Atlassian and Slack have have separated their interests in a in a very sensible way, and the business just keeps getting stronger. And as a consequence, I I, I just think for all the reasons I've just outlined, I, I just think that Atlassian is a magnificent investment. I think for all the things that an individual will look for, which is kind of growing on its own net dollar retention rate doing good in the world around you, satisfied staff and, retain you know, insider ownership and, and two founders who, whose names are not household names just yet. I just think it's a, a magnificent business. And, and while we might not talk about it around here very often, it is definitely admired by me on a very regular basis.
1: Yeah, it's a great company. I'm I'm actually a, an investor in it. and It's it's up just over 140% since we picked it two years ago. So it's been a good pick so far. And as I mentioned before, one you've kind of picked as as one that might stand out as the world moves more remotely um, in the future. Uh, let's move on to jargon busters then. So the first question, Emmett, is coming to you. And this came in from... Um, a listener called Lauren, who asked, uh, is borrowing money to invest always a bad thing? So one of um, my Wall Street's, I suppose, golden rules is that you should never borrow money to invest. But is there any situations or or times when maybe in borrowing some money to, to invest in the stock market is not a bad thing?
2: The only time I think borrowing money to buy shares is a good idea is if it's off a very rich and forgetful parent who forgive you <laughs> if you fail to repay them? Um, the as I've said, I think on this podcast before, stock investing is the preserve the the I suppose the privilege the, you have a little more than you need, and you can assign it into businesses for the long term. Uh, you shouldn't borrow to buy shares, um, yeah, because the interest rate that generally goes with borrowings for buying shares is generally very high so broadly debt comes in two colors long-term debt short-term debt long-term debt like your mortgage and i think even car debt it is certainly in this part of the world the interest on borrowing for a car is quite low uh they they come at low interest rates but credit card debt which is the shortest short-term debt comes at a very high interest rate and um the the instruments extended to you for borrowing shares by your broker to buy on margins generally come at a very high interest rate. So your shares have to rise quite a significant amount just to keep up with the interest. So, um, as a broadest rule of thumb, never borrow to buy. Um, there are, of course, there are of course exceptions to every rule and and uh the listener is lauren lauren is such sorry james was a lauren who asked, yeah, yeah. so i mean lauren might have facility available to her that's very forgiving and very low interest and it might be an, a good time for her but i i, I think I, i'd avoid it so my answer is i think i'll stick with i'll stick i'll stick with my answer james i'm gonna say no never borrow to buy or find yourself a rich parent. Um, <laughs> that's great.
1: Thanks, Emmett. So the next question, Rory, I'm going to throw over to you. And it came in from Kieran, And he asked, what happens to my shares when a company I own is acquired?
0: It depends on what the acquisition is. In the vast majority of cases, when a company is acquired, uh, essentially they're taken off the public market. So they are no longer a public company. They are now a private company. Um, yeah. And so you can't own shares in the, the same way you can't own shares in Mars or you can't own shares in the shop down the road from you. They're not no longer a public company um, yeah. or at least they're no longer an independent public company. Um, so in the vast majority of cases, what's going to happen is an all-cash tra- trap transaction, at which point you will be given cash for your shares. So there will be a, a tender offer of, let's say, $20 a share. And if the board accepts that and the shareholders vote in it, at some point in the future, you will be given $20 for each share and you will no longer own that company. It'll just happen. Your broker will do it. You'll wake up one morning and there'll be cash in your account instead of the the company being there. So that's Um, an
1: all cash deal.
0: That's an all cash deal, and typically, what will happen is when news of the of the buyout occurs, the stock will rise to somewhere around the tender offer. So, if it was twenty dollars, yeah. the stock will typically rise to something around that. Usually, kind of, I mean, in that scenario, it would be kind of like nineteen ninety, and that discount is for is there because perhaps the the sale won't go through. Perhaps there'll be some legal issue where they can't actually complete the acquisition. Um, So at that point, people will just usually sell their shares and take the profits and and move on. There's also uh, uh, stock deals as well, where uh, a public company will exchange shares in their company for that company. So um, a good example a few years ago was Tesla. When they bought SolarCity, Uh, each shareholder was given Tesla stock in lieu of a SolarCity share. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you, one day it'll just happen. You'll wake up. You won't own Silver City. You'll own Tesla shares. Yeah, uh, and then and occasionally there's a cash and stock transactions, which you know I won't complicate things too much. But essentially you will get stock and some cash. Um, so that's basically what happens. As a as a in you know as an instit- as, a, as an individual investor, there's very little you can do about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. many many times over the last yeah. few years, we have been bought out of companies that we would have much rather held on to mm, um, and yeah. mind body springs to mind mm. Mazor robotics springs to mind yeah uh, there must have been more emish uh Both the wild would,
2: wings and um, yeah
0: where we were just like god wish you know that company would have done so much better yeah um if yeah, it, it just remained it? independent yeah uh, so uh, you fitbit. Know,
2: i'm pretty sure fitbit uh, in times like this anyway sorry uh, that's interrupting your point but yeah there's so many of them
0: yeah, you know, you think because usually on the day you'll see a kind of what's the, the typical premium is about 20 to 30 uh, percent mm. above what the share price is. So you'll you'll check your portfolio one day and see your stocks at 30 percent. They'll be this. Yeah, great, brilliant, made some money. <laughs> uh, and then kind of as you kind of think on it, you'll be like, I really wish I'd been able to hold on to that stock for longer. Yeah. Because, you know, if the, the acquiring company typically sees something in that business which is worth the premium price, and as shareholders, we're always kind of hoping to hold on to smaller businesses and and see them grow over the long term rather than getting that kind of quick 30 percent bump.
1: Absolutely. Um, and so the last question, where I'm going to throw this to you as well. Um, Stephen emailed us asking, what tools did the investment team use to weigh up a potential investment? So when we kind of have a company on our radar, what are the tools or, or resources you use to, to figure out if it's a good investment or not?
0: Uh, I mean, starting from scratch, like when someone's just mentioned a company to me, Yahoo Finance is, is yeah. uh, sadly the best resource, resource um, because it's a really awful website, but it does have a huge amount of information on it um, and <laughs> where you just kind of go and you can find out kind of basic facts about the business uh that'll kind. Of, theres then there's kind of like a checklist of things that you look for and you know we talk about all the, the characteristics we look for in a good long-term investment uh, regularly so I won't dive too much into those um then you know once once you've kind of once your interest has peaked and you're starting to say okay this could be a good investment then you go on to the investor relations. Website of that business. Uh, yeah. Every public company has an investor relations uh, site, so just type in the name of the company followed by investor relations on Google, and you'll be brought there. That's where you will find every piece of information that the company has made public uh, for the um, duration of history. So all the way yeah. back to when it was first IPO'd. you can find all their financial reports there. You can find all their press releases. You can find uh, yeah, you can listen into their earnings calls. Um, And so, I mean, that's that is the bare bones of what we use uh, in terms of like you can find a huge amount of information just through that. Uh, If you're, you know, if you've gone through all that and you're still looking for more information, there's plenty of websites that you can use to kind of find out, you know, what's going on with a business. Uh, I find Glassdoor really, really insightful, which is a website where the employees kind of rank the CEO and say how they feel about working there. Happy employees are usually a very good sign of a of a business that's succeeding in a, in a place and a and good company culture where, um, talent is they're able to acquire talent and keep it, um, and talent acquisition is a you know a big part of running a successful business. So, yeah, that's just I mean that's one example of uh, a site that we use quite frequently.
1: Yeah, I need to add in it.
2: No. <laughs> Everything he just said, times two. Yeah.
0: <laughs> d- d- I mean, like, if you, you'll, you'll find, like, if you reach out even to your network, you'll find, you can usually find, like, people who interact with the business or people who work with the yes. business as well. And yeah. That's, that's always a good thing, you know, um, talking to people who who work there talking to clients or talking to uh, customers of the business big customers of the business you get a good sense of whether you, they believe the company's mm. operating well and people are happy working there and they're on the up
2: just i, I would say when we were one, speaking. one thing i might add james sorry is is that you can one thing that i'm certain rory does and that we all do is when someone even mentions a business to you like once you don't know it quite well already, we as a practice go and find out. Anything yeah. that passes our line of sight, anything we hear about, anything we read about, and we read lots of different magazines and online and uh, Rory and I are subscribed to a lot of different services that kind of have, like the Wall Street Journal for example so we're, I know we both read The Wall Street Journal virtually cover to cover every day. And in that, if we happen across a business that we're not quite acquainted with, we've developed up a way of having a quick check-in. And as Rory said, Yahoo Finance is to that activity what Google is to search. So you get in and you get a quick handle on, you know, the size of the business. It's cash, it's debt, it's insider ownership, what it does, where it is. And in no time at all, you kind of have a, a rough circle around the, the, the cut of the business. And, um, and from there, we go into more, I suppose, sophisticated research and, and investor relation websites and speaking to people, as Rory said, and so on. But yeah, it's, it's a mixture of tools and methodology.
1: Absolutely. Um, so let's move on to the elevator pitch then, because we're, we're running out of time today. So for this week's one, it's a pretty simple one. So I asked you guys to pick a stock that's on your radar at the moment, that's not in the My Wall Street shortlist. So are uh, there any stocks that you're kind of looking at the moment that maybe are potential at new additions to the My Wall Street shortlist or or just that are piquing your interest at the moment? Um, Rory, I'll come to you first.
0: Yeah, I mean, good follow-up to the previous question because this was actually suggested by a long-term user uh, called Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Um, who emailed us about a company called C Limited, okay. um, uh, which is... Uh, uh, e-commerce, gaming, and payments companies serving Southeast Asia. Uh, you could kind of call it a kind of mix between Amazon, Mercado Libre, and maybe DraftKings that we were talking about earlier.
1: Okay, that's a wide um, scope.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I traveled Southeast Asia last year, as as listeners might know, and I love the. Love the place and um yeah, they've got kind of three big businesses operating at the moment. One's called Shopee, which is essentially like their Amazon. They've got something called C Money, which is a payments platform, and then they've got a gaming business called Garena. Um kind of kooky company. They're they're big, they're a twenty four billion dollar company. Uh, the founder renamed himself Forrest Lee after Forrest Gump because he identified <sighs> with that character's quiet and humble nature. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's, he did an MBA in, in Stanford. He's kind of this kind of kooky character, he's like to the point where I was like, you know, I'm not ready to invest in it yet, but it's definitely piqued my interest because I think it's an area of massive opportunity. And I think, uh, he's kind of following the kind of Mercado Libre route of, you know going in copying the guys who've done it before with his own kind of local knowledge attached so yeah. and uh, it's i mean i wish i wish i had heard of it before because it's mm. been an incredible i think it's up like five-fold in the last two years so um yeah one i'm keeping a close eye on
1: how could that story not pique your interest in the i the
0: i mean like that that was the thing, you know, when I as well, soon as I saw that first Gump thing, I was like, okay, I'm definitely, definitely <laughs> interested in this business.
1: <laughs> yeah. And just, just to clarify, that's C S E A group, not the not the letter C. Uh oh, yeah. Like C trip. Yeah. yeah. Um Emmett, what company are you looking at the moment?
2: Well, I really like what little I know about the software maker Schrodinger. Um so Schrodinger listed not too long ago, it's a it's a company that uses physics-based software to help researchers discover the quality novel molecules for drug development. So in the world that we're in, more so than ever, we all understand the need for developing new drugs quickly. And despite being founded in 1990, actually, they only listed recently. So there isn't enough info on Schrodinger yet for me to be excited. But what kind of caught my eye was Citrin Research called them the, the drug development equivalent of Tesla um so you're either gonna like it or hate it and it's a business with 400 employees mostly in new york city uh and some around the world but their their ir investor relation website is lacking at the moment it's a business i was primed and ready to get excited about looking at the how they expedite the discovery of molecules and and license that out is something I think is the world is going to need more of. But uh, I'd love to see faster growth than they've had so far. And I know that there are IR people who I tried to speak with who are very helpful and respectful, but couldn't give me any more than was on the website, which was tantamount to nearly nothing. And there was reasons for that. But um, it's a business I'm waiting to get more info on. And I think that if it could just be one of these um, emerging heroes of the next generation, considering we've all just learned what we've learned from coronavirus, is not Bill Gates one of the Yes correct yeah Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation early investor in the business Roy, you right, which is another yeah. green tick against it he realized now I think they probably sowed their capital seeds wide into anything in this area, but I think that the Bill and Melinda Gates are actually is still on their warm uh, list of businesses that they really believe play a relevant part in the future
1: so that's Schrodinger and that's about it from this week's Stock Club don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of of Stock Club please make sure to get in touch You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ or shoot us an email at pod at MyWallStreet.com That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club if you like it and if you're really enjoying it, please leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. From all of us here today, we'll talk to you in two weeks.